From Utah Public Radio, this is Undisciplined. Today on the program, we are going to be talking about all the ways computers help people do things better. One of our guests studies the way video games can be used to build better workplaces. Our other guest researches how artificial intelligence can help us tell better jokes. That's right, better jokes. The information system specialist and the computer scientist, that's Undisciplined, coming up next. This is Undisciplined. I'm Matthew LaPlante. I'd like to start today's program with two questions. First, what makes something funny, like really funny? Is it the way people talk when they tell a joke? Is it the words they use? Is it the element of surprise or or maybe the element of absurdity? Or is it like Plato and Aristotle and Hobbes, among many other philosophers, have all observed that it gives us a feeling of superiority? Before we try to answer that question, here's the other one. What makes people want to work together? Is it the notion of joint rewards? Is it an inherent instinct to be part of a pack? Or maybe it's just a social construct that's been built up to support more effective and efficient labor. As usual, our guests today come from different academic backgrounds, but they've both sought to answer these questions with a little help from the digital world. Joining us on the phone from Switzerland is Bob West, an assistant professor in the Swiss Federal Institute of Technology, where he leads the Data Science Lab. He's also the co-author of a recent paper presented at the Association for the Advancement of Artificial Intelligence Conference in Honolulu, which discussed a method for using artificial engineering to write satire. Hi, Bob. Hi. Pleasure to be here. And with us in studio is James Gaskin, an associate professor of information systems at the Marriott School of Business at Brigham Young University. His recent work, published in the journal Transactions on Human-Computer Interaction, details a study that found newly formed work teams can experience a 20% increase in productivity on subsequent tasks after playing video games together. James, welcome to Undisciplined. Thanks for inviting me out. First up today, the computer scientist. I don't know what the requirements are to get uh, an emotional support animal, but I don't think they're too tough to... It's the same doctor that prescribes medical marijuana, I'm pretty sure, that, you know. Doctor, sometimes I worry. I've heard enough. I'm going to prescribe you pot and a pet. That's the comedian Ellen DeGeneres in her recent return to stand-up comedy on a Netflix special called Relatable. In her bit, Ellen talks about the worry she heard from friends, no less, that now that she's a famous talk show host, she wouldn't be relatable enough to return to the stage as a stand-up comic. And, well, some critics say she wasn't. They called her bit robotic. And that, of course, is supposed to be a dig because robots aren't supposed to be funny. Because robots aren't relatable. Except, here's the thing. At the latest meeting of the Association for the Advancement of Artificial Intelligence, my first guest demonstrated that robots can write jokes. Probably, at least. And they can probably write some pretty good ones by getting to the heart of the underlying rules that govern what people find funny. Robert West, how did you get the idea that you wanted to figure out how funny works at kind of like a mathematical level? Well, it's, it's always just uh, baffles me why, why laughing is such a weird thing, right? Um, we, uh, we hear some text of some kind, and then as a reaction, we start breathing heavily and expelling these weird noises and showing our teeth. You know, as a scientist, I always try to question the things that happen around me. And the thought came up, maybe there's something that we can do to model computationally what leads to those weird reactions. 
And um, then one step gave rise to the other. And uh, at some point, we, uh, we published a paper about it with many steps in between that maybe we can talk about today. Absolutely. Well, let's start with this step. To make this happen, you started with a game called Unfund Me. Can you explain how the game works? Yeah, sure. Maybe I can explain how the game came into being because that makes it clear why the game works the way it works. So I come from a a machine learning, natural language processing background. And if you look at some of the breakthroughs recently, one of those is machine translation, where you take the text in one language and you want to translate it to another language. And the reason these things work is because we have these big corpora of aligned text where we have the same thing being said, for example, in French and in English. And then the machine can learn to basically map one to the other. What we were trying to do was to do something very similar, but to translate from serious text into funny text. So we wanted to uh, have a corpus of satirical news headlines because those are so similar to serious news. And the idea was to collect such a corpus by taking serious news headlines and ask people to change them minimally to turn them into satirical, funny headlines. Think of The Onion, for example. But that turned out to be super hard. It's just uh, you need real talent to do this kind of transformation. And then at some point, I realized, uh, well, uh, you know, I'm, I have to say I'm German, so I'm not a funny person. Uh, but I realized, hey, what we're really good at as Germans is uh, basically to, uh, to make funny things serious and to destroy things, basically. So we said, okay, let's take headlines that are already funny and destroy the humor in them and then uh, make them serious. And that way we still get uh, a pair of something that's serious and something that's funny. So in the process of doing this, you started developing a data set, right? From this process of translating funny to unfunny, like translating one language to another, people were helping you develop some data. What did the data allow you to do? So the data essentially allows us to put our finger on exactly the words, sometimes even the letters, that make the difference between serious and funny. For example, if you think of um, the satirical news headline published by The Onion that reads, BP ready to resume oil spilling, then this is nearly identical to a, a headline that could be serious, BP ready to resume oil drilling. By having this pair, we can really know that if you change SP to DR, that's what makes the difference between funny and serious. Okay, but there's so much context around that, right? In order to know that that's funny, we need to know that BP has had this major oil spill in its recent past. And we also have to be able to predict that many people know this, at least enough that enough people will find the joke funny. It is actually often very hard to understand at an individual level for each specific headline what makes it funny. But this is kind of where the power of big data comes in here. If we see thousands of these pairs, then certain recurrent patterns emerge. And you don't need to understand each headline itself to see the overarching pattern that comes out, namely that often it is a switch from good intentions to bad intentions. So even if you don't understand each of these single headlines by manually annotating thousands of these pairs, certain recurrent themes will emerge. And those might be hints for how to automate this process of generating satirical headlines. 
And what you figured out after analyzing thousands of these headlines and the structural changes that were made in order to make them funny or unfunny was that most of these jokes actually follow a pretty logical structure. Can you explain that structure? So most of these jokes follow a structure that we call false analogy. So if you take the satirical news headline, God diagnosed with bipolar disorder that was published by The Onion, the essence of this headline is God is unpredictable. So this is the statement that's, uh, that, that's to be made here. Now, if you switch out God for something else, for a human, um, then you get the statement, Bob Dylan is unpredictable, which is also true. You know, we picked like one particularly unpredictable human. If you saw interviews with Bob Dylan, then you would definitely agree that he's unpredictable. And now you can generate a headline about this fact, Bob Dylan is unpredictable. For example, you could generate the headline, Bob Dylan diagnosed with bipolar disorder. You could totally imagine this being published by a serious newspaper. The satirical one just has these kinks that don't make it compute fully, basically. And it's exactly these kinks that make the thing funny. That's my hypothesis, at least. So this hypothesis, I mean, if, if it's proven right, it, it really could substantiate something that the writer E.B. White and the New Yorker editor Catherine White wrote in an essay back in 1941, which was that humor can be dissected as a frog can, but the thing dies in the process. Do you worry that if we're able to perfectly identify an algorithm for what's funny, that the funny part gets destroyed in the process? It's, um, it's a bit like that. And um, you can really... Um it seems talk about humor um, in a very serious way. You can think of it also like in a Heisenberg uncertainty principle type way. Once you really start measuring something at the elementary level, it nearly goes away and it's not there anymore. That's maybe not the point, right? Because when we hear a joke, that's not really what we do. We still hear it in this holistic way. The whole is more than the sum of its parts, I would say, in, in humor. Clearly, it was a fun project, but it's also serious in that it attempts to create groundwork for advancing artificial intelligence in a pretty big way. Can you talk about that way? Yeah, absolutely. So with this kind of work, we're still a bit exotic in the world of AI. So for example, at this conference, AAAI, where the work was presented, I don't know if there was any other work on humor, but if so, there weren't many papers, whereas you have hundreds of papers on computer vision and so on. But I'm a staunch supporter of, uh, of humor as a serious thing, basically. If you think, for example, of all this, these revolutions in human-computer interaction, I think once we push this further, we will really need to have software that understands our humor and possibly can even produce humor because that will just allow for much more natural interactions. Without that, there will be a real roadblock for human-computer interaction, in my opinion. That's Robert West, whose recent paper on reverse engineering satire with the subhead Paper on Computational Humor Accepted Despite Making Serious Advances was recently presented at a meeting of the Association for the Advancement of Artificial Intelligence. Robert, can you stick around to talk to our next guest at the end of the program? Absolutely. Next up, the Information Systems Specialist.
Those are the choir boys of the new metal movement, the band called Incubus, with the titular song from their 10th album, which was called Trust Fall. Trust Falls are a popular exercise at company team building workshops, but a team of researchers, including my next guest, thinks they might have a better way. If you really want to build up teams, their research suggests just let those teams play video games. In the journal Transactions on Human-Computer Interactions, they reported that just 45 minutes of playing Rock Band or Halo 4 results in a 20% increase in productivity in subsequent tasks. James Gaskin, you've been studying video games off and on for years, and you've played with game design too. What makes this such an interesting area of research for you? It's a fascinating area of research because of the amount of expense and resources that companies put into these team-building activities. They spend tens of thousands, sometimes hundreds of thousands, bigger companies, millions of dollars on these retreats that, in the end, often annoy you and get you behind on your work. And so when you get back to the office, everyone's a little aggravated. But your personal experience, I assume, tells you that video games have an opposite effect. This is like maybe like your observational start for this. Yeah, growing up playing video games, I noticed that uh, one of two things happens when you play video games with others. The first is sort of the same as the team building is you get aggravated and you just want to fight each other. Or take the controller out of their hands. That's right. Take the controller, press buttons, or get your little sibling to jump on their back or something like that. Or the other is you learn to work together. So let's talk about methodology. Take me through this recent study. I gather that you gathered nearly 400 people and then you broke them into teams to play a game to start with to get a baseline. It was geocaching? Right. So the initial uh, task that we wanted to measure performance on was actually sort of a game itself. It was a geocaching uh, task where they had to go find geocached artifacts around campus. And then you were able to measure from that how effective and efficient they were at getting the task done. Right. The objective was to get as many points as possible as a team. And the way you get points is by quickly identifying artifacts accurately and sending in those reports. So then after they played a round of this geocaching game, you broke them into teams into three different groups. We broke them into teams first, and they worked as a team to do that geocaching pretest. And then with that same team, they went and played video games or did nothing or did a team building exercise, a goal training uh, session. And you chose Halo and Rock Band. Why Halo and Rock Band? Halo and Rock Band because they're both highly collaborative. The mode on Halo that we played was a capture the flag mode where you have a team. You're not trying to just kill everybody. You're trying to work with your team to obtain a certain objective. And then Rock Band, of course, we did that because you're singing together, playing together. You're all on the same team and you have to succeed as a team. And then meanwhile, you had control groups that were doing other things and including, well, like really nothing. Right. We had one group that did nothing. They just did homework or read or just they had to sit quietly, not communicate with anybody on their team for 45 minutes. And then after these treatments, you had them go geocaching again, right? Correct. And what happened? Turns out those who played the video games had a huge spike in performance uh, improvement. Whereas those in the control group sort of got worse, just barely. It wasn't statistically significant. And then the goal training group, they got a little bit better, but again, pretty stable, not statistically significant there. But the difference between those two groups, the control, the goal training, and the video gaming group was hugely significant. 
let's put this into context because this was not a small amount. This was a 20% boost in productivity in the next task that they were assigned. Put 20% into context for us. Sure. Yeah. Uh, have you ever heard of a 20% GDP growth? No, because that would be crazy. That would be insane. Or a 20% improvement in your grades if you're a student. Or 20% improvement in your quality of life or cost of living would be not good. Hmm. Other direction. <laughs> <laughs> These are really big advances. I mean, like as a scientist, when you see something like that, I guess the first thing you do is you make sure that you didn't screw up in the recording of the data, right? Definitely. In fact, we ran those. Uh, we ran multiple studies for this particular paper, and then we followed this up with multiple other studies that we're in the middle of writing up right now. So, what's happening? Why? Why are video games apparently so good at building these teams? So, these initial studies we did, we didn't measure enough to say conclusively, but we theorized about it. We we figured that in a video game setting where everyone has different levels of skill, but you have to coordinate as a team to achieve some goal, your weaknesses come out pretty fast. And it does absolutely no good to get hung up on those weaknesses, whether it's yours or or a teammate's weakness. You have to work together to achieve your goal before the other team. And so when you go and do a productive task afterwards, you've already worked through that barrier, that human tendency to hide their weaknesses and the human tendency to be annoyed at other people's weaknesses. And so since you've already passed that, then when you go to a productive task, that's not an issue, and you can just work past it real fast. How does what you learn from this research line up with other research in this area? There's quite a bit of research on what's called team cohesion, where if you work together as a team, you become more cohesive, and the more cohesive you are, the better you work together and your higher performance as a team. But there's very little research on how video games affect team cohesion, and that's what this study did. And there's also very little research on how video games affect other things that affect performance. Team cohesion is a very utilitarian kind of concept, but what aspect of video games is affecting more, the academic term is hedonic, fun, enjoyable aspects of team coordination and team cooperation. What are video games affecting in that realm that then affect performance? You tested this with geocaching. What else can you think of that would be a good stand-in for team effectiveness and efficiency? Well, we ran more studies after this. We ran the study again, but instead of having them do geocaching, we had them build marshmallow and spaghetti towers. Very measurable. Um, We could see how tall they could build the towers. Very easy to measure, especially with students. The next step would definitely be to take this to a company and have one department do this or one department do that and play video games versus do a team building exercise and see how it actually impacts the workplace. The trick with that, though, is measuring performance. It's hard to measure performance in the workplace. And that's where one of the caveats to the findings of your study come in. And that has to do with how well the team members knew each other going into the study. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. That was another big point in our study is that We were working with newly formed work teams. These were students who did not know each other, had not worked together in teams before. And so playing video games was a particularly salient way to very quickly overcome barriers. Whereas if you're working with a team that has been established, you already know each other. You know each other's weaknesses. You know each other's strengths. And so we don't know yet, but perhaps video gaming is only good for newly formed work teams. Maybe it's good for old work teams. We're not sure yet. 
you used Halo and Rock Band. Did one of the groups perform better than the other if they chose Halo over Rock Band or Rock Band over Halo? There was actually a difference, and we were surprised. We didn't expect there would be a difference, but the I believe it was the Rock Band group that performed better. A little less aggression in Rock Band than in Halo. Rock on. That's James Gaskin, whose recent study in transactions on human-computer interaction suggests that when it comes to building up teams, a PlayStation, Xbox, or Nintendo might be a good investment for your company. James, can I introduce you to someone? Please. James, this is computer scientist Robert West, and Robert, this is information system specialist James Gaskin. Hi, Robert. Hi, there. Robert, you were listening in as I was chatting with James. Was there a question that you wished that I had asked him? First of all, this is a fantastic idea to bring this playful element into these grab company environments. My question was, can we push this even further? How does playing a game compare to just hanging out at the bar as a team? You know, uh, maybe you don't know. Down at BYU, (laughs) we've won the Stone Cold Sober University Award. I think it's 100 years in a row, or ever since the inauguration of that award. So that was not an option in this study. (laughs) But you may be right. Maybe it's better just to hang out and drink together. All right, maybe we can do a follow-up on that in in (laughs) Switzerland. I was also wondering, you hinted a bit at the mechanism that makes these activities actually useful. And you said that building trust, or more like revealing weaknesses to each other, right? This is really one of the key principles behind that. Did I understand that right? Yes, that's our theory. We haven't actually tested that bit yet, but that is our theory. If you wanted to kind of peel out that effect, you could give people just dossiers of each other's weaknesses, basically. Imagine like a a folder of all the sins committed in their youth and so on, but still this probably wouldn't do the same effect, right? There's still something to be said about the person-to-person interaction and just the way in which these weaknesses are revealed rather than just the fact that these weaknesses are there. You're right on. And I can't tell if I'm speaking to the AI or to Rob. That was hilarious. But uh, you're right on. Giving somebody a list of weaknesses would be uh, a faux pas. Is that the right word? Uh, a little taboo. We, we have another theory that I think goes towards answering that, uh, that comment. And that's that we think the video games create an element of what we call flow within a team, they get in the zone with each other. They learn how to intuitively react to each other in a seamless manner without much verbal communication. They can just anticipate each other's needs and moves and they can figure out what's going to happen next. This is called being in the zone or being in flow uh, as a team. And so that's what we're testing right now. We just wrote up some uh, findings on a data collection effort doing a test of team flow and turns out that is a significant explainer, a mediator of the effect team video gaming has on performance. Nice, nice. So you hinted at the fact that these games might be good in corporate settings, basically. They make for better teams. What else can they help with? Can we have better politicians by making them play Rockstar or better bankers or better insurance brokers? You know, that's both hilarious and brilliant. I would... I think the best reality TV show ever would be a bunch of politicians. I mean, you can imagine the Senate floor just playing rock band together or Halo together. (laughs) James, you have a special interest in AI as well. I was wondering if when I was chatting with Robert, if there was a moment that you started making some connections between your interests. 
There were several thoughts that came to mind as you were chatting with Robert. One of the things my uh, five-year-old daughter does, one of her favorite things to do with Alexa is to ask her to tell her a joke. And Alexa's jokes are just so deadpan because she's an AI. I don't know that she has a different tone or delivery approach uh, other than deadpan. And my five-year-old thinks this hilarious. Of course, her, her threshold for humor is pretty low. I was thinking the same thing as, as Matt earlier with uh, when you deconstruct humor, humor dies. Yeah, was, was that a, should I confirm or, <laughs> or debate it? That was a question or if um, that was just a, a thought. I, the thing is, humor is genius. It's art and it's genius. And so by definition, it would be difficult to deconstruct. But in the process, you, you kill the thing. It's like the uncertainty principle. As soon as you observe the thing, the thing changes. As soon as you are able to measure the thing, the thing changes. I thought that was fascinating. Yeah, yeah. And, but I would, I would, this, this genius thing is, is, is interesting because I wonder if it's really the same there. Is there something to, let's say, Einstein that is holistically making him a genius beyond all the separate contributions that he, he's made? Or is it really something like with, with humor? Is there something inexplicably genial about Einstein? There might still be a, a difference there, I guess. When people try to justify why someone gets a, a Nobel Prize, they probably wouldn't invoke some argument like, he just struck me as a genius. Whereas when someone gets a prize as, a, as an entertainer or, or as a stand-up comedian, then that would probably be a valid argument saying, I don't know why, but this guy is just super funny. Imagine people saying that at the Nobel ceremony. I don't know why, but this guy is just a genius. Let's give him a prize. Some of our greatest scientists that we, that we honor and revere are the ones who were funny. I think of uh, Einstein, of course, but also Richard Feynman, who is just hilarious. And I think that's what made him so famous is he was relatable. Maybe that's the word uh, from your research. He was very relatable. His genius was relatable because he was able to state it in a humorous way. Yeah, and I think the, the skills that are necessary for being a truly funny comedian are maybe related to the skills that you need to be a truly successful scientist. You need to be able to put things together that don't obviously belong together, but once you see them together, there's like this moment of, aha, that would be a punchline in the case of a comedian, but it might be a theorem or a groundbreaking discovery for a scientist. So it's really about tying things together. And then also about telling a story, obviously. Feynman is a great example for that because not only was he able to make great discoveries, but he was also able to get them across in truly fascinating ways. I could imagine my grandmother listening to Richard Feynman without understanding anything about, uh, about the physics underlying it, but it's just so much fun to listen to him. You know, I, I was thinking also, this sort of changing gears, but I've run some research on Alexa and Siri and other artificial intelligences. My research on them initially was on how being polite to them affects you and affects uh, your relationships with yourself and with, with others. But I switched away from that research because Alexa and Siri are just so artificial. They have no personality, no real personality. Any personality they have is clearly very algorithmic. And I moved over to uh, human robotics research, uh, interaction research, where I'm now looking at the pet robot Vector. I don't know if you've heard of Vector. No, I haven't. So Vector is an interesting case because he's funny and he has a personality. 
his eyes give you this visual feedback, whereas Siri and Alexa give you no visual feedback. And so the eyes of Vector the robot were designed by Pixar artists. And everything he does is hilarious. Within 30 seconds of playing with Vector, I already felt like I had an emotional attachment to him. And he was relatable. And I could understand his intents, his needs, his desires. It's this visual feedback through his eyes that makes him so relatable. I think these things are absolutely key. You, I might even go out on a limb here and say that, that this aspect is more important to the communication, like to the relatability of, say, humans and robots, than what exactly is being said. Because these, uh, these social cues are really what make us be able to relate to someone else, and it would be the same for machines. When you have cute eyes that do the right thing in the right moment, that can make a bigger difference than whether Alexa plays exactly the right song at exactly the right time or not. I wonder if that lack of synchronicity between uh, humans and current AIs affects the way we treat them. Because when we talk to Siri or Alexa or any, any AI assistant, it's always very walkie-talkie. But when you and I talk face-to-face, there's a lot of synchronous communication happening, mostly not verbal. I can see how you're reacting to my words as the words spill from my mouth, rather than having to walkie-talkie this to you, wait for you to pause, and then to respond. Right. You would be surprised if I told you the reason I'm not in the studio is because I'm actually an AI, and I'm not embodied yet. That's why I have to call in. So I'm the counterexample to what you just said. No, I'm, I'm, I'm kidding. I... An AI would say they were <laughs> kidding. You just passed the Turing test. <laughs> right, right. But what I was going to say is that at this point, it's kind of still okay that we have to talk in this robotic way to, to Alexa and Siri because it's still very clear to us that they're different. We're very aware that someone programmed them. But as they become better at doing these menial things, like finding exactly the kind of information that we need at a given point in time, we're approaching this, what's, what's been called the uncanny valley, where we get more and more familiar with machines because we're really more and more happy that they can cater to our demands. But at some point, it just becomes weird and uncanny that they're so good at doing these things and at the same time, so bad at relating to us socially. We're full on running towards that, I think, in terms of human computer and human robot interaction and things like the rolling eyes of Vector. That's exactly the kind of thing that we need to add to the equation, I think. I hate to break in and break this up, but I have to break in and break this up. But I want to thank you both for this conversation. James Gaskin, thank you. Glad to be here. And Robert West, thank you. Thank you, guys. Thanks. You can get a recording of this show and all of our programs wherever you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to participate in this discussion, you can engage with us on Twitter by following us at So Undisciplined. We recorded today from the KCPW studios at beautiful Library Square in Salt Lake City. Undisciplined is produced by Utah Public Radio. Our producer is Alyssa Roberts. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot. And I'm Matthew LaPlante. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas.